welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Danielle Hanley. And now that he's back from the duot, hard balanced and ready to fight, joining me on the line is John McMahon. I don't know if any of those are accurate, but I do love this intro. <laughs> I am like the dialectical negation of all of those. Yeah. Oh, look at me prepping the cave oh. from man, the second 30. The whole podcast is the cave. <laughs> I would also like to proclaim that that was not at all planned. I didn't know oh. Danielle's intro beforehand. <laughs> that just came to me in the moment. That shows you That's how, how locked in I am. Yeah, locked and we are locked and loaded for this our <laughs> final episode on Moon Knight. That's what I'm talking about. So today we are talking about Moon Knight, episode six, Gods and Monsters, the finale of Moon Knight season one, the series finale. It's unclear. It is directed by Mohammed. Pray to the gods of the You don't have to to watch it. I'm I'm (laughs) over here like Oscar Isaac was on a boat with Mohammed Diab in in Cairo, and I'm like, please give us another season. Um Directed by Mohamed Diab and written by Jeremy Slater, who has the teleplay by credit, Peter Cameron, also teleplay by, and Sabir Pirzada, also teleplay by, and uh, Slater, Cameron, and Pirzada are all people who have written on other episodes of this series. John, you want to give us the IMDb summary? Yes. As Moon Knight joins the fray, Mark, Steven, and Kanchu must work together to stop Amit. Watch, like, they're really going out on the lowest possible note on these IMDb summaries. <laughs> no, it's really like this is an episode of TV that has Mark Spector in it. Like, yeah. is like the only step down they could have done for us. <laughs> yeah. So I think the goal is we want to talk some about this episode more specifically. This yeah. is Danielle's suggestion. I'm just relating to the audience. She's the mastermind behind this. And uh, she is the... I am merely her avatar. <laughs> I do feel like depending on what it is we're talking about, whether it be on the podcast or mm-hmm. in our own work, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. who's the who's, <laughs> the who's the god who's the avatar like switches off, right? Yeah. Like I feel like we switched that off really nicely. Yeah, that's, you know, when, like, the only way we relate to one another is through the podcast. We're just going to start doing that in each other's lives. It's like every interaction is a game of who is the avatar, who is the god. Absolutely not. <laughs> pass. Hard pass. pass hard pass. Hard pass. <laughs> okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about our, our plan here? Yes. So the plan is that we're going to talk about this episode in some specifics. Obviously, spoilers is the entire podcast has always been through whatever we're talking about. And then I think upon Danielle's suggestion, we want to talk about, shall we say, both the form and the content of Moon Knight as a whole. Uh, Moon Knight, as it relates to Loki, as those relate to Marvel, to do a little kind of reflection on, which I can only assume is the last Marvel it's ever discussed on Not Quite Great Books podcast. If Danielle has anything to say about it. Sorry, Nick. Sorry, Nick Barnes. I'm like, what what of John's favorite shows can I just, like, decimate week after week? It's a great question. That feels mean. (laughs) I'm here for it. I'm ready. I think I'm more ready for that than you are ready for me. You put up an admirable, like, truly commendable effort over these last three months of MCUing. 
Um, and nonetheless, I think I'm more ready for you to just hate on things I love than you are. I wonder if part of it is like, I'm not used to you like hardcore hating on stuff in general. And my general disposition is to hate on most things. <laughs> it's like, it's an expectations game. Yeah, it is. Um, which is surprising. Cause there's a lot of things that I hate. So and a lot of things that we hate together. So, exactly. like, <laughs> you know, here's the thing. A lot of things we hate together can never be said in a public setting yeah. or recorded. <laughs> For a number of reasons. Real, real true. Real Real true. true. Yes. I I mean, from your lips to God's ears. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's dig in because otherwise we could just like bullshit about this for forever. We sure could. All right. So I want to let you uh, take the lead here as we kind of work through these major plot points that are supposedly emotional beats as well of this episode of Moon Knight. A little taste of where John's going to take the, the guardrails are off. The tongue is like, there are no guardrails. What's happening? Exactly. A, a good Nietzsche link. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think like the first place to start is perhaps thinking through some of the fight scenes and their resolutions. So Wonderful. Um, I want to think together about like the Stephen Mark Layla Harrow fight. I'm like worried to ask you what you think about this fight. Great, but I think this is the like big. This is a a big sort of like culminating moment, right? That like we get Harrow against. Uh, Steven and Mark, who are like who have learned to fight together, that's a big thing. Layla is there as the Scarlet Scarab, which we don't get the name of that, but like that's what her costume is, and and that's sort of like what people who are into the comics have been thinking because there's a lot of moments in the series leading up to this where the, Layla's got the Scarab red. is pleasant. I did not I did not make the Layla Red connection, but yeah, I, and like I don't expect you to, right. so right. that's why I'm here to tell you. Thank you. <laughs> Knowledge I badly needed in my life. This is just, it's like, I feel like, and I'm going to hate myself for saying these words. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, know, I don't know whether to be excited or terrified right now. But I sort of feel like there is a little bit of, like, I am Strauss leading you through the, like, secret meaning of some of <laughs> I am here for this analogy so hard. <laughs> If only we had had this discussion three months ago, I would have been 10% more into the entire MCU experience. That's what it feels like, right? Because there's like, there's, there is. There's the numerology esotericism part of it. There was some actual numerology in Loki. Exactly. And there, and there's the like, um, the like truth with a capital T that we have like I think thought about together and pushed back against but there is an element of like well like these things do mean something and like the more that we adhere to like what they mean in the comics canon or what they mean for the MCU like the more Straussian like we slash I am trying to be and like I have to put that on the table right like I mean it's I appreciate the self-reflection that it takes to be able to recognize this about yourself and say it aloud. So I just want to affirm that. Luckily, most of our listeners don't know what that means and uh, don't won't hate me so much for it. <laughs> Assuming a lot about the quantity of listeners we have. But to your point about the fight scene, I actually want to walk back a couple of scenes before that. Yeah. And that wh- how did you 
think about on a plot level or visual level or character level, the mark leaving the field of reeds against what Tavares suggests to go reunite with and save Steven from being trapped in the duat. They go through the gates and so on and so forth. Like how did just you as a viewer who is mostly bought into the MCU, like engage that scene? I, on the one hand, plot-wise, it felt like that's what had to happen, right? It it felt like there had to be, like, a coming together. It didn't feel like the show was leading up to, like, the discarding of of one, right? Like, of one of the identities. Um, So, like, that... But, like, I also... I, I think the previous episode... And the sort of, like, balancing that's happening throughout that episode that we talked about last week with Nick, I think that helps us earn a little bit of the meaning behind that moment. Um, So, on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, like, I... Something that frustrates me more generally and frustrated me about that particular moment is, like, I don't necessarily know what the rules are in the duat and so like I don't know which of these things are possible and not possible you know me I like a rule I like knowing like I, I like knowing the breakdown and so I struggle when the rules aren't aren't fully clear to me and I think that's in part the show not making them clear because like Plot-wise, they need to be a little bit unclear. And I think that's in part like me just not paying attention enough. I mean, I don't think those rules are laid out. I agree with you that if one just accepts the fundamental premise of an MCU show and Moon Knight more specifically, the moment of them coming together is like a prerequisite for the hearts to truly and generally be balanced to like use the lingua franca of the show. Yeah. Does, I think, make sense. Yeah. Now, stepping outside of that, like... They ran that entire scene as, like, cheesy as fucking possible. Like, literally, the heart glows to unfreeze them from, like, sandstone. The, like, jumping up and down and the running and the, like, it was just way too much for me to handle. Um, And, I mean, like, it's just really, really cheesy and corny. And, obviously, that's not my mode of enjoying something. And to your point about being well-earned, of course, I recognize this is me like being the reviewer who doesn't, who wants a different article, but of course, like what I want is them to be like locked together in stone, sand and stone forever. Like that's the ending of that interaction that I wanted as me, which, which, which ironically in the like dark, uh, for like the darker timeline of the show holds true to the, the they must be together in order to be uh, have the hearts balanced except yeah. here it's that they're locked into stone which again never the show I was going to get although I don't know maybe it could be like Layla and Tavara and Kanchu save the world without Mark and Steven and there's something about their like acceptance of coming together there that also could have worked a couple of things. One is we can't have that show because the show is called Moon Knight. So like we, <laughs> we need Moon Knight in the show, at least in this season of the show, right? Like I think there is a version of the show that earns the, the like the, 
disappearance of the Moon Knight character, right? Like, that that's a version that sort of splits the difference between where you are on Moon Knight and where I am is like, yeah. we, we leave the show with mostly Layla. We're both happy about that. I want Mark and Steven, like, in the mix. You don't care about them. But, like, Layla is, like, where both of our eggs are both in that basket, right? So, like... That's maybe more generous than I'm feeling. I mean, about things in general. If the show is to... If there is to be a show, that is how I would want it to go, yes. Yes, I... Okay, you don't get a, like, I love you, but, like, you don't get an opinion on whether or not there's another season of the show. Like, <laughs> or not the audience. We literally have a podcast, and what is a podcast <laughs> if not to voice opinions for uh, we have things that people have not earned and have no basis from which to yeah. proceed? Yeah. We just need to suspend disbelief for a minute where, like... Which I did. I was, like, given the universe of the show, and if we accept it, yeah, 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 yeah. this 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 is earned. Yeah. Okay. Generous. One way to think about it. <laughs> um, but the, the, the piece that you said that, like, is... I think is important is I appreciate that, like, for you, the togetherness of Stephen and Mark is earned, even if the... The like next step after they are together isn't the thing you want. Like recognize, I think like the togetherness is the thing that the show earns, right? Like that that's the yes. big thing the show earns. Yes. Thank you for getting us back on track. I think that's correct. <laughs> and you know, and there's a certain, I suppose this I'm less perhaps upholding, but there's a certain, there has to be some kind of reuniting of Steven slash Mark with Layla and presumably yeah. we need to engage on this simultaneous, like human and God level battle conflict alongside one another. Like that has to happen by the logic of the show. Um, yeah. And so I suppose one could say that's well earned that they end up fighting together. Certainly like I appreciate that they didn't, make Layla into Moon Knight. Like she's yeah. Scarlet Scarab and said, she has a cool costume um, and so on and so the forth. Cool wings. Like, yeah. Cool <laughs> wings with, I guess like knives or swords on one end of the wings. What, yeah. It's like her necklace, right? Yeah. Like her necklace had those like could stab people. So it's like that the necklace was sort of the precursor to the costume. Yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah, and then there's the fight scene, which, like, whatever, it's an MCU fight scene. Um, oh, so, like, I agree, right? And, like, I think your point is that if we build this out, right, like, if the show, it, if we earn the Mark and Steven together, one version of that is, like, they die together. And, like, that doesn't give us this, so we don't go down that path, though it is a possible path. The other version is, like, they fight together, right? Because, like that is a place where we have seen the bulk of the conflict between them, right? And, like, Steven not knowing how to fight, not wanting to fight, Mark, like, only wanting to fight, like, the suits are different. And so the realization that you pointed out last episode where Mark is like, or rather where Steven is like, if you have it, then I have it. We're in the same body, right? Like, that gets, like, that materializes here in, like, a, in, like, a a really present way. I, I know that like this fight scenes and this fight scene are like not your favorite thing about this show, but I wonder like beyond the, Oh, this is a fight scene in the MCU. Like, did you find anything like profound or, or, or worth talking about with like the Mark and Steven switching back and forth? No, 
Okay. Um, I think what I found most profound was Harrow's staff that shoots thunder like Palpy's force lightning. Okay, tell me why you liked it. No, I'm just making a joke about a <laughs> silly thing that I observed. Let me ask you the question because you have a you do have a like more worthy opinion on this. Like as a fight scene within within the MCU, yeah. like how would you evaluate this extended multi part fight scene between Stephen, Mark, Layla, and Harrow? Like on the on on a visual level, in terms of fight choreography, in terms of is this better CGI than other Marvel fights, my major fight scenes, so on and so forth. So I think that this is actually one of the more impressive fight scenes because of the choreography of it all, right? Like I think where in the past we've switched back and I think it's because or in the past we've switched back and forth between like the Moon Knight and Mr. Knight costumes as like again that's like that's the conflict and we see the push pull there where like there's a fluid moving back back through those costumes because in different moments in the fight like different skills are needed Mm -hmm. like there's something to me there's like something important about that and there's something cohesive now i loved layla's part in that and that she felt like it felt like three people in a like Mark, Steven, and Layla felt like a three-person team as opposed to, like, one of them feeling outside. Like, it felt like the three pieces were moving all together. So, like, I liked that. But I will say that, like, I – and I said this – I've said this to you before, and I said it to you before we started recording, but, like, I generally don't love CGI stuff. I, like, want the, like, physical persons. I'm a Luddite. I, like, barely like having a computer, (laughs) let alone, like – generating animation on that computer somebody today in orientation was like you should create a discord for your students and i was like nothing could be further from the reality that i want to live in we literally have had a conversation in my department about whether to start a discord for our students like a poli sci department at suny plattsburgh discord channel no but the like the dean who was like facilitating our small group was like but don't you get notifications all night about it and he's like yeah, like some point I turn off the notifications and I looked at her and I was like, this is my nightmare. So like anything about technology, I'm just like, oh, do we need so much of this? So like, I don't love the the CGI of of all of this, but I would say that with the amount of CGI in this show, I still manage to enjoy it a fair amount. Fair enough. I mean, I actually like the quantity of cgi in this fight scene didn't necessarily bother me and like to make a comparison to loki as we'll do a little bit more thoroughly later on Mm -hmm. there is the scene where sylvie and loki are like fighting to try to get on the noah's ark like vessel off of the planet um and i don't know it's like episode three or four of loki yeah and they're in similarly like a urban space granted this is like an urban space city you know 2400 and whatever the year is much further down the line but i found the cgi in and around cairo much more effective than the cgi fight scene of sylvie and loki fighting off guards in that city on um on the moon who's yeah forgetting 
I, I agree with, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, lamentous. Lamentous. Um. There we go. <laughs> I died. I lamented its, its existence. And oh, its we knew it was coming, everyone. We knew it was coming. We were waiting for it. And John delivered. And we, S- we thank him for that. So I have a question for you, Danielle. So okay. there's, there is a moment amid the scene of Stephen, Mark, Leo, and Harrow all fighting that was my, like, biggest snicker or groan at this entire episode. Do you want to guess what it is? I've given you obviously a hint by, by there's a lot of options giving you a hint by, by bounding it here to this extended fight scene. Honestly, this isn't where I would have put it. So no, oh, I have, where no would you have put it? I thought you were going to snicker about some of the like to wear it, like trying to talk to Layla stuff. Didn't love it, but not the biggest, not okay. the biggest grown worthy. What was moment. the what was the biggest grown worthy? It is one of as I've explained to you on and off air more times than you would like. <laughs> like my biggest MCU pet peeves. It's the young girl who says, "Are you an Egyptian superhero?" Oh. And Layla says, "Yes," and it's the and it's exactly the taking credit for a thing instead of just doing the thing and letting it speak for itself that really like grates on me. So I'm of two minds about this because I'm with you that like, we didn't like, we could have had that. So the critique of the episode, um, from like a lot of, I heard this coming out of Muslim populations and Egyptian, but not only Egyptian, like there's like a lot of talk, like Layla's not only a female superhero, but she's like a Muslim superhero. She's an Egyptian superhero, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So like, she could have just been, she could have just the, gotten the question, right? There's a version of this where we get the question, like, are you a superhero? Yes, right? And that's calling it out, but it's it's less uh, gestury, right? It's like, it's less kitschy about mm-hmm. it. Um, so, like, that's what a lot of the, like, critics from within those communities were frustrated by, which I, like, respect that. I think, like, what I'm hearing from you is, like, it's even one further, right? Like, just let her be the superhero and, like, let it happen. Yeah. You don't need to get all winky and self-congratulatory about it. And, like, you use the word kitschy, and I think that's one of the other correct words because it's it's just an adornment that's there for the sake of the adornment, for the sake of look at how good a job we did, as opposed to, like, letting it do the thing. Like, it does the thing, so just let it operate and function as this thing you have created. So I, like, I agree with the, like, let it do the thing. And I think, like, if we only read this as a moment of, like, self-congratulation, then I'm fully, like, on board with you. But I'm just thinking about, like, the aggressive amount of backlash that Ms. Marvel got, which was, like, not dealing with Egypt, but also dealing with, like, a, like, a Muslim community in New Jersey and, like, um, like Pakistan at the time of partition, right? So like a ton of backlash. So I think we also, if we wanted to be generous, we can we can hold space for the self congratulation element of this because it's definitely there. But I think we also have to hold some space to the like it's important that they call this out because like there's still a huge population of the fandom that's like racist that's frustrated by like any and all of this stuff that will try as hard as they can to just like brush it away as like whatever it's another superhero so i think there's a there's a more generous way to read it 
which doesn't delete the like self-congratulatory yeah. element. This is the this is the only legitimate counter to like this is just self-congratulatory winky bullshit, I think. I don't disagree. Like that self-congratulatory element is absolutely there because Marvel likes to celebrate how much work they're doing. It's like a similar critique that you had for the like Loki being by, right? Correct. Like it's yep. a, it's a similar. So I like I, that is there, but I do think the calling out like serves another purpose so as to actively mark the space as something different, as something welcoming to what's different than before and like it doesn't solve the problem of self-congratulation but i think it's important to hold space for both of those things yeah yeah and if the point is the like racist mcu fans are too like blockheaded to be able to get this unless it's called yes, out directly absolutely. to their face yes. like this that that's a point yes. i can i can strategically and instrumentally yes. get behind it's like it, exactly it's like the same point where loki has to like say like Yes, a little bit of both. It's like, canonically, we know that Loki, like, does whatever he wants with whoever he wants, gender notwithstanding, right? Like, but it needs to be called out because, like, the fandom needs the reminder that, like, their, like, racist, misogynist, like, et cetera, nativist bullshit, like, is not the only way to exist in these universes. And so for like all of the stuff that's frustrating about the like Egypt of it all, I think it's still important and like worthwhile in that regard too. Fair enough. Fair enough. What else <laughs> do you have to say about this fight scene? So I wonder if maybe we want to talk a little bit about the other piece of the fight yes, scene. Yes, please do. The the Khonshu and, and Amit of it all. It's <laughs> just like Here's what I'll say. I don't love a CGI like only extravaganza. Um, I have I have more to say about the relationship between this and the like Stephen Mark Layla Harrow situation a little bit later. But I was again like understood. I understood where it sat plot wise. I also think we could have just had the fight between like Steven, Mark, Layla, and Harrow, and we didn't need the fight between the actual gods. Like the fight between the gods is like the worst yeah, of just, the worst like the worst of CGI, the worst of this is pointless and meaningless, the worst of like cringy and LOL worthy and not a good way. Like the the, the fight choreography isn't even good. It's yeah. it's I mean with maybe the one exception of one Amic gets like kind of pinned to the temple yeah, with that moment staff. That's the only like decent fight choreography moment of that. Here's the thing: like, if I could, there's a version of this where we could have only gotten that fight, and then like I maybe would have been frustrated by it for similar reasons. But like, okay, we needed a fight. We needed a fight between like the big bad and the hero? Question mark Right. But, like, the fight between Stephen, Mark, Layla, and Harrow is so much more, at least to me, interesting. And, like, the thing that the series has been leading up to, like, I just don't think we need the Amit Kanchu fight. And, and like, that goes back to the, like, part of the conflict in the series is, like, releasing Amit. So I guess we were going to get something like that anyway. But I, 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 I sort of wish that fighting with Harrow would have, like, dealt with the Amit stuff. I think that that's a good point because 
as we'll talk about later, as, I, as I've noted throughout, I like the visual design of Kanshu. Yeah. I actually mostly like the visual design of Amit in this episode. And so, like, the fight then that I just purely kind of detested it, like, meant that there are these things that I thought were kind of cool that just failed on a, various levels. And more specifically to your point that maybe you just need the on-the-ground fight scene between the humans is that parts of the dialogue between Ahmed and Kanshu are actually quite interesting and fascinating from within the universe of the show. And by ensconcing them within this shitty fight between the two of them, you lose some of the potential impact or resonance of the dialogue between them that is in fact generative. And I wonder if there's a version of this where, like, they are not able to fight each other, but they're both in the Great Pyramid or something, and they're they're forced to have this back and forth while their avatars are going at Maybe it. Maybe like, there's an incrossable chasm between them. Perhaps. Perhaps. We love a chasm. <laughs> Does it stare back? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay, so, but let's, let's talk a second about the dialogue. So... Amit's ma- trying to make the point to Kanju that their worldviews and understanding of justice and punishment or, you know, retributive justice is not that separate. And Kanju like, thinks that there is this gigantic, you know, let's call it like an ethical gulf between their two visions, right? So Kanju, you know, I also only punish those, excuse me, you know, Amit is like, oh, we could have had this, you know, great partnership together, et cetera, et cetera. And Kanju's like, I only punish those who choose evil. Amit yeah. says, so do I. Um, Kanju says, you know, you don't give people the kind of choice of committing it or something to that effect. Yes. And like, okay, if the dialogue's corny, the dialogue's corny, it's an MCU show between the gods, whatever. But as like an examination of how we understand questions about will and agency in relation yeah. to issues of justice or punishment or ethics or retribution or whatever, like that is actually a somewhat meaningful distinction or difference between the two of them. And then they keep going on, right? And so Amit yeah. says, well, why do you fight when you know you will lose? Kanshu, I have the choice, the very thing that you are trying to take away. And so there's this kind of debate between the two of them. And of course, it gets echoed back at the very, very end of the episode when like Mark and Steven make the very point about choice back to Kanshu. Yeah. Again, like this dialogue from within the universe of the show is pretty good. And yeah. Uh, mediocre at best fight that surrounds it just kind of slightly ruins what could have been relatively good dialogue. Yeah. I mean, I, here's a moment where I agree with you. (laughs) Yeah. That's because I'm being generous. Okay. Well, I don't agree with you on that. So being willing to talk about things is not being generous. (laughs) (laughs) I said lots of times, like in the universe of the show, this actually works. That's extremely generous. I don't want to make this podcast about what you think generous is. That's <laughs> <laughs> <up> for me. <laughs> um, no, but I like, I mean, the point is like, I agree that the dialogue feels, feels meaningful, but it is, it's like one of these moments where the, just like the production choice to me just feels unnecessary right like i i want them to spend that money doing something else <laughs> i i guess is like that's the the way that i'm thinking about it 
Yeah. Um, but I think like the dialogue and the, the points about their worldviews, the points about choice, the points about free will that you're pointing out, like all of that stuff is interesting, right? Like that's exactly the fodder that like we have wanted that we've been getting tidbits of throughout the show. And like, you finally get this moment where they're going, they're able to go head to head and it just feels like it is like marred or like it's obfuscated by like technological animation choices Mm -hmm. and they've already leveled up this issue that to your point has been brought up before in the show right like there are arguments i think it's episode two between harrow and khonshu are arguing with one another about these different worldviews about what constitutes justice and i believe we did a whole politics in the mcu thing about that very disagreement between the two of them so we've already leveled that up by yeah. animating amit and making amit a character in the universe who is yeah. like present and active and not just trapped you already did the thing to raise the quote-unquote stakes of yeah. the interaction or the argument between the two of them Exactly. Exactly. So it's just, it's like frustrating because I think it also impacts the, like, it impacted my experience of the fight between the avatars too. Maybe we want to like conclude our discussion of these fight scenes by thinking a little bit about the resolution and, and, yes. the, and the binding of Amit to Harrow. Yes. Which I think like you found quite effective as a quasi end to the story. Yeah, it was a choice that I it was a choice that I wasn't expecting the first time I saw it and it was something that I like was still I just was like pleasantly surprised surprised with the like creativity of that choice and like of course it's our girl Layla who is like I've got a solution, you know, like Layla, the hero of this show, the like pinnacle of our podcast. This is a Layla stand podcast. Um, and so I just, I like appreciated that. I appreciate that Mark's like, doesn't try to fight her. He's like, okay. And he just like steps on in with the, with the binding spell. Right. And like, I, I, there's something about the lack of struggle in that moment between Mark and Layla. Again, that also felt earned because it seems like the prior episode is Mark coming to peace with like the relationships in his life. And so I liked that. Yeah, I think that you're correct about that last point in particular. And that's that's a, an, an uncharacteristically ungenerous moment. Like, I didn't think through that level of them by, you know, the, like, ease with which they came together to yeah. like, work the binding spell and so on. In part because I didn't necessarily love the visual depiction of it or whatever, but also because I think more, again, important from within the universe of the show is the... Emphasis by Kanchu that they have to then kill Harrow so yeah. that neither Harrow nor Amit could kind of ever be animated again or be active yeah. presences in the word, world again, right? And Mark says, uh, Mark first says, okay, I'll do it. And Layla says, no, you have a choice. And Kanchu is like, your choice is vengeance. You can't let Amit find a way out, which is, of course, from and strange conflation of those two things from Kanchu's yeah. perspective when like from within the years of the show, those are actually two quite separate choices mm-hmm. that he is rolling into one. Um, and then Mark slash to you and says, you sound just like her, uh, so on and so forth and decides not to kill Harrow. 
to me, this is just like a moment of growth. I think the thing that I'm like most surprised by is the, the like the sort of the switch that happens with we've seen gods bound to objects before or like put into objects and the sort of like rendering of Harrow like as an object that the god could be bound to and then like Mark's decision to me is like no I refuse to like I refuse to treat him as only an object like to me there's kind of a complicated or interesting both and that's happening that like only arises like with Mark's realization of like choice, right. And like, and freedom. Yeah. If one views that as a kind of choice of freedom and agency and agential choice there at the end. And like, to your point of it demonstrating growth again, within the universe of the show that I'm kind of not myself internal to, like, I think you're correct that there's a certain closing of an arc from Mark slash Steven to, recognize and then exercise that particular kind of choice. Yeah. Yeah. I think Marvel shows like to close arcs. To me, this was, that was a more satisfying like arc closure that then like gets blown up. Right. Like, which we'll talk about in a moment. And like, I'm just here for any of the, I'm like here for blowing up things. Right. Like, yeah, I don't want, I want weirdly closed arcs. And like, this is, this is is a neat ish closure to the arcs. So like, again, internally to the show, I totally get why they have done what they have done. Even if like, it doesn't resonate or connect with me emotionally in any way. Yeah. And I think that that's fine, but maybe let's talk a little bit about, um, the Jake Lockley reveal. Yeah. What'd you make of it? I liked it actually. Um, Tell us why. So as uh, Danielle is aware, and I think we probably have talked about on air at some point, like I'm not a fan of the mid credits or post credits. (laughs) Also also that, but you know, generosity, Uh, fan of the like mid credit sequences and both in the form of this mid credit sequence and the content of this mid credit sequence, I thought it was quite effective for ways that I think a little bit shade into what we want to talk about in terms of broader picture things about Moon Knight. So it sounds like you enjoyed or got something out of this mid credit scene, the reveal of Jake Lawley. So maybe you should go first here. Yeah. I mean, I, again, like I think that the decision not to, so the decision not to murder Harrow, right? Like operates on a couple of different levels. One the most cynical level is like it leaves open uh, the potential for a season two, right? Like that's the the thing that those of us who are enjoying the show leave the show before the post credit scene. I see your face. We don't need your response. <laughs> no, we do. Those who are also not looking toward a season two have the same response of cynically, this is a possible thing that is happening. <laughs> Fair. Just wanted I to like, highlight that. We know that you don't want a season two, John. We that's, are yeah, yeah. Well that's, that was not the point I was making. Just saying that you didn't <laughs> no, have to be looking forward to a season two yeah, yeah, yeah. to that's identify true. the possible cynical motive. A fair point. Um, so 
that's the first thing. This I think the second thing is like it it le- it sort of ties up neatly in a bow, and like Marvel shows really like to tie up neatly in a they bow. Sure do. You know, Loki doesn't get tied up in in a bow, which is what's fun about it. And the the like post credit scene there is there will be a season two that gets revealed in like in the the post credits of the finale of Loki, right? So like. This one, we get the feigned, here's your, like, package bow, here's your trip into season two. The most of the threads that have been hanging are, have actually been tied up or clipped off. The one lingering thing, what about that third sarcophagus? Or what about that, um, those blackouts that we, like, haven't quite figured out who's doing what there? This answers those questions. So like in some ways it ties up, it ties up those loose ends, right? It ties up that bow. In other ways, it just blows up the like, oh, where are we going from here? Like we thought we had the full picture, but we, we really don't. Yeah, we really don't. And what did you think of on the character and plot level of killing Harrow? like the specific act of Harrow being executed. Like what is the show trying to achieve even irrespective of, if even possible, the appearance of Jake Loffley, which snaps other things into place, like, or is that so intimately tied to Harrow being killed that there is no point or kind of meaning or significance to attach to just the simple act of Harrow being killed? I think it's hard for me to disentangle those things. So I appreciate the way you asked that question. And the reason it's hard for me to disentangle those things is I think the killing of Harrow serves to remind us or like show us in a moment uh, where there's like a little bit more emotional weight or character development that has happened that like Jake does not give a fuck like if you read back that action onto the moments of of like blackouts where Steven and Mark have been like, wait a minute, why are all these people dead around me? Right. Like if you read that back, it's like, right. We knew that he's like cold blooded in a way that Mark, we know now that Mark maybe has those predilections sometimes, but like, that's not his main mode of operating. The killing of Harrow as Conchu says, do it. Jake does it like no fighting, no questions. So in the same way that we saw Mark not question or struggle against Layla or Steven in this final episode, Jake does not struggle against Conchu. So the question it raises for me is like, why isn't Jake the one who's always in control with Conchu? Yes, that's the right question to ask because it takes us back to episode five where we see the different parts of the traumatic memories and consciousnesses of Mark and Steven. We see the kind of origin of what Steven has invented, if that's the right terminology to be using, I'm not 100% sure there, but like how that relationship split and developed over time through, if we assume a certain coherence to the system of uh, DID characters. Um, And then that is something to your point that, we no longer have any sort of grasp on exactly how that's working an episode after we thought we had some deeper understanding of how it was working. Or like we do have a grasp, but we, our grasp is not complete. And there's something about that incompleteness, which like brings us back to the like 
the incompleteness of the Loki finale, right? Like there's a lot of things that are opened up and not a lot of things, not a lot of questions that are answered in that episode. And I think like we, the introduction of Jake Lockley and the killing of Harrow puts us in the same place where we don't actually know where to go from here, right? Like the, it is the next adventure like of Moon Knight, whether it's a show or in a different property or even in the comics, is it like, is it simply the like the struggle between Jake and Mark and Steven? Are there other identities in there? Like uh, how many identities make up the system? It doesn't negate what we have learned, but it puts them in a con in the context of larger questions. Right. It has a similar effect as dropping us into the asylum at the end of episode four of disorienting the tentative understanding we thought we had generated about the particular functioning of how the universe works and how the characters work within that universe. Yes, exactly. And like, I think that that parallel and like something I like about the show, and I think this is maybe a point to like, to, to start to transition. Yes, let's do that. Yeah. But, like, something I like about the show is the willingness to disorient. Whether that always works, I think, is a is a question. But, like, I definitely experience much more disorientation in the some of the choices made in this show. And I think for the better, even though I'm someone who likes to know the rules and likes to know, like, what's going on, the, the asylum as a site of disorientation for the audience I thought was creative and productive. And like, I have like general issues with like being in an asylum and like, there are questions that that raises, but like, I do think for this character and the questions about reality that it raises, like I liked those choices. Yeah. Should we move ahead? I have more to say about this final scene, but I think it actually fits better in the kind of broader question we're about to ask. Yeah, so I think, like, one question... Now, you have begrudgingly <laughs> watched this show. Generously. No notes. <laughs> the, the only note is to add in generously. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I got you. So you have begrudgingly watched this show. You have begrudgingly, perhaps a little bit less begrudgingly, watched Loki. Now I've subjected you to three months of Marvel. A lot of months. A lot of months. Um, and so I, I want to ask a, a, a bigger question both about this show, but about Marvel more generally. So does this episode or does this series unsettle any expectations or binaries we expect in a Marvel TV series or in a TV series more generally? Does it maybe try to unsettle and not succeed? And and in in what way? Yeah, I, I want to start very specifically and directly with the reveal of Jake Lawley and then okay. him killing uh, Hera right there at the end, because I think the thing that I appreciated it, appreciated about it the most is that it unsettled the neat ending that we had gotten earlier is I think you intelligently discussed and also unsettles the presumed moral rules of uh, the MCU, right? That like we, even with the complications we will give to the various heroes or maybe anti-heroes as we were talking about with Nick last week, there still is a certain kind of sense of moral goodness that prevails. And just having Jake Lockway show up and straight up murder Harrow, like in cold blood with like a silenced pistol in a car 
I think just does a different, darker, more violent, and a somewhat more effective way than other ways that violence gets depicted in the MCU turn to what could have been a neat ending. And that also is why I think kind of formally I bought this as a mid credit sequence more than I generally do because like yeah. reveal of here's a character for the 14,000th connection between movies and reveals. Like I just find incredibly like cringeworthy and grown worthy, but having the mid credit scene kind of totally undo the resolution to the thing that we had just watched yeah. also I think works on that formal level that it's actually better in a certain way that this comes after a couple minutes of credits rather than fade to black at the at, you know what we thought was the end of the main or what was the main part of the episode yeah. and then immediately we get this scene in the hospital it's actually better to suspend the audience for a few more minutes before getting it because it does some of this unsettling work that you're asking about. Yeah. I, and I appreciate that way of thinking about that scene in particular, that, that like that thinking about it as like a mechanism for unsettling, I think like, I don't know. I think it like pushes the audience to expect more from a post credit scene, right? Like, listen, I do love a Harry Styles as Eros reveal in the post credit scene of Eternals. I-, I love it. But I think that like you're, you're picking up on a line of critique that Marvel fans themselves have of phase four, which is like, we keep getting these new characters or like these new connections, but like, we don't know how any of them are connected. So, which is obviously not the critique, the, the way that you're taking the critique. Yeah. But I think like that fatigue of like, Oh, here's just more new stuff is, is one that the audience, the actual audience of these things is experiencing too. And so to like think differently about what these scenes could offer I think that's something that this that this episode or this series does. Yeah, and in some ways, I'm going to make a strange connection. But last week, I watched uh, Last Night in Soho, okay. and there's not a post credit scene, but uh, we think the movie's over and it fades, and we come back and we've jumped forward a tiny bit in time, and it kind of adds a new perspective on the uh, previous ending. And like the Last Night in Soho is not a good movie; it's like perfectly fine um, and semi enjoyable. Two ways to spend two hours. But there, the like immediate turn to not something that unsettled, but put a too neat bow on the like weird fucked up last 45 minutes to an hour of that movie totally didn't work because it did some of the simplifying, settling, you know, making it easier to tolerate and to take in as opposed to giving the audience a couple of minutes in the credits and then coming back to unsettle what they had just watched in a more generative way than the actual resolution of the main part of the show. It is a random connection, but I think like 
it goes back to a conversation that we had pretty early on in our exploration of this series about who is the audience, what kinds of expectations do the creators have for the audience, and I think in many ways Moon Knight is different from a lot of other properties in the MCU, and like this is another way in which it's different. I would like to hear more about ways you think it's different in a second, but I'll make the point just on that particular note that we have this discussion at the end of episode four. And one of the things that we both genuinely liked about the ending to that is it did ask more of the audience or challenge the audience more to like think and engage with the material and like the questions about reality that we talked about and narrative structure that we talked about. And there's a similar sort of flavor to this post credits or mid credit sequence where it's asking a lot of the audience yeah. to have the reveal of this additional kind of member of the DID system. I agree. It's asking, it's asking more of the audience than I think we often expect like IP to ask. Then I always expect IP to ask. Correct. (laughs) Correct. So what are, what are some of the ways that you think Moon Knight is functioning differently or unsettling kind of audience expectations? I think the fact that we don't get like a, a, a clear line to like how this is related to other MCU properties is actually one of the biggest things, because I think that's what, that's what people who are watching these shows, like they want to see how is this connected to like the next movie that's coming out? How is this connected to the characters we know? And like, there is nowhere in this show is a clear link to like, wherever we're going to see Moon Knight next. It's unclear whether we're going to see Moon Knight next. Like if the Jake Lockley killing Harrow was the end of this show, that actually narratively like is cohesive. I'm not satisfied by it, but it's cohesive and like it would be a great place and a and a cool blowing up to end, right? As someone who advocated for the end to Loki being Sylvie and Loki are just like, eh, the universe implodes on itself and we're done. I, I hear you on that last point. I mean, I will say that given my general cynicism, hatred, and disgust, beyond the asylum scene in episode four, beyond the kind of working through DID in the way they did in episode five, and then this end sequence, which granted is like maybe that constitutes a lot, but like otherwise this doesn't strike me as particularly unsettling expectations that I come in with about a Marvel show. Yeah. I mean, that's not a surprising like reaction from you, but I, I guess like, yeah, I would say that like the asylum stuff, episode five and the ending, like that's a fair amount of things that adds up to a substantial number of things that like the fact that like the end of this show could just be the end of Moon Knight in the MCU to like think a little bit about contract stuff. Oscar Isaac only signed on for, for one season. And part of the reason why he only signed on for one season is because he was yoked to star Wars for a lot of years and was like taking part in projects that he like, didn't, it didn't sound like he really supported directions that those projects ended up going in. Right. He didn't have a lot of creative control and he likes to do characters that are more grounded. And he has said in interviews that Moon Knight, the, the DID element of this, of this series is something that grounded the character for him. Right. Like, and there are, I think arguments to be made as to whether or not like we all experience it in that way. The question mark about like 
the connection between Moon Knight and others. And like, I have a sense of like where, where we could see Moon Knight next. And like, it doesn't necessarily require that Oscar Isaac signs on for anymore. In fact, it only needs to be like the Moon Knight character and not the, the backstory part of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's like one thing, but I think the other like piece of this that feels different is willingness to like engage somewhat deeply in like challenging issues. How many times I'll ask myself this, how many times <laughs> there, like, I know that you don't, I know you have an answer to this without having watched more than three of these properties. Listen, I love a captain America flick. I'll watch Chris Evans run around with a shield from here until the cows come home. But like, is he like deeply engaging like psychological issues? No, uh, he's not. So like the willingness to represent DID for better and for worse, I think like that too is like to me something that sets this apart. That um, and I think like you you have asked me in the past like what's this show about? And like this show is about introducing the character of Moon Knight, and I think I have a better sense of who the Mark and Steven parts of that character are than I do most, at least like internally than I do most other characters in the MCU. Not all, but most. Yeah. Well, here's, here's the most cynical possible reading of that. And I, and in this particular instance, I'm not even sure I necessarily fully buy this most cynical reading. Um, Don't worry. That's coming in the cave. Um, and this goes back to Loki as well, like whether it's Loki's bisexuality or whether it's the setting in Cairo or whether it's the exploration of DID that at root, these are explorations of forms of difference that become grist for the content mill. Right. And that whatever interesting or good things might come out of that. Like at the end of the day, ultimately what the exploration of DID is or Loki being biased is that it is for the content, right? Like we're doing it for the content. And I'm not sure I a hundred percent agree with that. I don't though think that that is. I lost you. And this has become the perfect moment for Danielle to totally freeze. And lose connection. Final word on Moon Knight. Done. Put it in the books. Close the recording. Well, Danielle, you're back. I'm mostly happy about that. But also, (laughs) as the audience heard me talking to myself, I was also quite relishing the possibility of that being the single last word of not quite great books, a TV podcast on the MCU. It would have been fitting. I would have been at cool and at peace with it. I mean, I get that, like, it It does feel, there's something about it that feels right, that, like, you get the That's last word. That's our ending. Is... You get the last word by silencing me technologically. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. That is, that is not where I thought no, we were going. No, 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 no. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. You would never. I'm, I'm silencing myself technologically, like, over and over again. At the whims of the Wi-Fi gods. <laughs> All right. But maybe since that can't, I suppose, be the last word, <laughs> we should move a little bit forward into our reflecting on our engagement with the MCU. 
Yes. And I think in, in that vein, we, I think the way we go is we offer our roses and thorns of the series and perhaps also of other MCU projects. The rose are positive highlights. The thorn are, uh, we'll call them negative lowlights. The, like the real, the real ditches we fall into. Uh, or the show falls into, other shows and movies fall into. I think that that's, that's how we do it. Yeah, and in a mutual spirit of generosity and reciprocity, I feel like I should offer a rose to start with and you should offer a thorn to start with as a show I of think, respect for our positions in this podcast. I think that that is only fitting okay. for, for our attempt to resolve <laughs> right, in our attempt to make sure we're still friends. We're, we've made it through, you know, 47 hours, 11 point whatever episodes. We're, we're going to make it, but I really want to be sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think this is a good, this is a good tactic to employ. Yeah. Thorn of the series. I think, like, my big thorn is, like, most of the CGI stuff. Um, I would say with the exception of the episode three turning to- turning the sky back and, like, the the eclipse like with the exception of those things any of the like even even moon knight like running on the roof of the church or the roof like before he impales the jackal on the church like the cgi stuff is like really tough for me to wrap my head around and it's the stuff i just wish wasn't there okay i was gonna give the rose to the eclipse Oh. Turning the sky back, so on and so forth. But I have more than just that. Which should I Look do more you. than just that since you yeah. already raised it? You know, I don't love what it is Oscar Isaac is being asked to do always or a lot of the times in this show and like requires a certain kind of acting that's not necessarily my favorite kind of acting. Sure. But given like those caveats, he does a great job with it. He's, of course, a very good actor. So too is May Collinway. So too yeah. is Ethan Hawke. Like they're, they all, they're all doing an exceptional job with what they're given. Yeah, they're chewing this. They're chewing it up there, and sure. and, and that's what the MCU demands. So, or asks of its implicitly asks of its, or maybe explicitly, I don't know, of its actors. So, sure. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I have other thorns. I have another rose. Oh if, my god! Please hit me with more roses. It's a backhanded thorn. <laughs> I would expect nothing less, but Thank also you. I appreciate that you Thank put you. it out there and owned up to it. Yeah. So I, and this is going to apply to Loki as well, and kind of you know the point that you were making that maybe we can use this to think about the MCU and other properties are there are moments of possibility for dark MCU of the like yeah. alternative universe where they can just fully go in the fucked up direction. Of course, they're never going to go in along the path of Loki and Sylvie implode the universe or Mark and Steven just get like stuck in stone holding hands or holding the heart or whatever. In yeah. The duet. But that that possibility of like my own fan casting or like negative wish casting yeah. can exist. I'm going to give a rose to in my generous uh, existence. I'll take that. I mean, like it's not exactly the, the version of that, that, that you're always wanting, but like Marvel has a comic series, but also a, an animated show. What if I've heard where, like, I'm familiar vaguely with the premise where like they give, creators the chance to explore the not always dark but sometimes like quite bonkers and sometimes dark like versions of these stories and how they play out so like i would love to see a what if where it was just like let's go dark depressing like 
MCU. <laughs> yeah. If they do like a full dark, depressing MCU show, maybe that's what gets us back to the mics about Marvel. I have an, I have another rose. Maybe. <laughs> I have another it. rose to give. It's that, and this all apply somewhat across the board. This is me being way more generous than I would like, but like different Marvel things, I have three in particular are willing to be opened up by critical viewers to deep questions mm. if the viewer wants to go there. And so for this show, I'll think and frame it in terms of, and this is very cave specific, but in terms of justice and yeah. justice as it relates to temporality, justice as it relates to agency and choice and will, yeah. justice as it relates to like different kinds of justice or theories of retribution or something like that. For Loki, it's, it is the temporality of it all, right? And there is the, you know, Loki queer time reading, which we dabbled in here and there. Um, mm -hmm. Loki for Black Panther, it's like something like Black nationalism or Pan-Africanism, right? The vision articulated by Killmonger, who yeah. the movie like doesn't, doesn't justice to his vision. Uh, but it's still there for the taking for someone to come and pick up with it. Some of my roses are a little bit more specific. Like, I think I just have to give the like character development around Layla, which is a creation of the show. Like I, that's a huge rose for me because it's someone that's someone, and I'm invested in the future of the MCU. So that's someone that I want to see in additional properties. I want to see how she's connected to others. Like where does, do we get her backstory in a more earnest way? Do we like see her grow? Like that's something, how is she impacted by the Jake Lockley of it all? Right. Like those are like, I just, I love Layla. I love Scarlet Scarab. Like I love that move. So that's a huge rose for me. I'll throw in the rose that I did, you know, as I've said multiple times, we'll talk a little bit more about this in glass, I think, but like, I, I like the visual design of Kanchu. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. While I don't love the like CGI of it all, I I think having a character that is the avatar of a god is a really interesting proposition in a bigger universe where the gods are involved in like there are extra human forces that are gods that are celestials that are all of these sort of like extra human powered up forces in the MCU, but in the comics canon too. So like, I'm interested in the way that this series plays around with those different layers. And like, I'm interested in seeing what they do with that in the MCU. There, I think are interesting ways to go with it and frustrating ways to go with it. So it could be a thorn in the future, but I don't know. I like the willingness to like, that's a weird thing we haven't gotten yet. It's a weird thing, and this I suspect is part of why you like it, but it's a weird thing that draws on, like, cultural histories right here. Obviously, totally. like, the thought is, as you've talked about, is I think you, Regan talked about it to some extent when she was here as well, the, like, Greek mythology or, like, the gods meddling and or mirroring human affairs yeah. situation. Daniel would always like, generally, more things to be more like the Greeks. Oh, Totally. One million percent. This is like an MCU-wide thorn that I have. And it's like, I know you're so excited for it. 
stop trying to do too much. I think like one of the things that this show does well is like it's contained. And part of that is we're not trying to connect it to seven other stories that exist, even though that might be there. We might get that later. Like it's not trying to like also bring in this and also introduce this new character and also do this. Like it introduces new characters it, it, it mostly gives us like an emotional, like a set of emotional investments that we can track throughout the series. There are some weird, cool turns. There are some others. There's some CGI that we don't love, but like it's pretty contained. I think sometimes where the MCU falls short for me is an attempt to like cram too many things into one. And I'm thinking about my, my mentor, Joel, once said to me that like every journal article. Can we get Joel on the pod? He's definitely never seen an MCU anything. I just not to be at the MCU. I, I could ask him. I like he likes us, so I could ask him. Yeah. He would actually be good for like thinking about the role of TV or its absence in one's life and the way we engage with like culture in the moment. Okay, so he's been, possibly a guest for a meta episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. We do love we, a meta episode. We love a meta episode. So, but like Joel once said regarding journal articles, like every journal article should have one and a half things that you're trying to argue, right? There's like the thing you're arguing for most of it and then the thing it opens up to. That's like his whole thing. You like thinking to the my journal articles that you have read, like you can see that in them, right? You see that. I'm actually laughing at our journal article that we're hypothetically working on right now, which is like, let's do four and a quarter things. Yeah, exactly. MCU creators could really use that advice. One and a half things. Don't try to do two. Don't try to do five. Don't try to do 17. Do one and a half things and do them well. So this is, I think, a challenge that the MCU has established for itself, like within also a capitalist political economy, and that it can't just do one and a half things all the time, right? Because then people make the complaints that I understand you have little time for, like about phase four so far, that we don't see enough how all the pieces are putting together. And obviously, I'm just like out on there needing to be a big content mill, yeah. like where all the pieces need to fit. Like I would prefer like one-off series or stories that are disconnected from a broader universe. Yeah. Um, and for things to end rather than kind of be made into per- made perpetually. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a thorn that like is inherent to the very core of the enterprise. Yeah. And I think like, right. Like great. If we grant that we're not going to get an ending, but we could get some semi satisfying, like satisfying endpoints and then new starting points. Like I think Avengers Endgame, the snap, like people coming back, et cetera, et cetera. Like what a great stopping point for phase three. Like great. Now we, we clear the board and we have to start fresh. I think a lot of the critique of phase four is like, oh my God, the starting fresh is not like, we're not figuring it out fast enough. And it's like, it would like phase three was satisfying because we got the buildup in the earlier two phases. And some of them had pretty shitty movies. Dark World, which is a movie I like, is generally a shitty movie that does not make any sense. I would say Age of Ultron also doesn't make a ton of sense, but like it becomes important because we get the like payoff of that story later on. You also dropped the hot take off mic that the first Avengers movie is bad. 
Yeah, the first Avengers movie is perhaps the least interesting narratively of any of these movies. Like, Dark World and Age of Ultron, Dark World is Thor's second movie and Age of Ultron is Avengers 2. And, like, those movies are bad, but, like, there's weird stuff that happens in them, so it's, like, more fun. Avengers is, like, here's the team-up. The team-up happened. We fight against Loki. Loki doubts whether or not he should be the villain. Now the movie's over. I love this movie. I watch it all the time. It's, like, on epics all the time at my parents' house, so I'm always watching it. And, like, who doesn't love Chris no, Evans? And no the- free advertising for epics. Like, they got <laughs> they got a sponsor if they want some free airtime. Listen, who doesn't love Chris Evans in the old school Captain America outfit? But, like... It's not it's it's not a good movie. It's fun, it's enjoyable. I want I want Marvel to do a little bit less and be more thoughtful about the places the the places and the where of the connections. Okay. I'll do some thorns like they're obvious ones so I won't spend too much time on them. Yeah. But the and again, this is a constraint of the universe and why I'm not the audience, but the need to a hit certain tropes or cliches and I intend those as like the most descriptive and like least neggy versions of those words in the kind of context of a superhero movie like it's just not a thing I'm interested in and so like there are better and worse ways of doing it to be sure right like Black Panther even with the problems that I think that movie has is a better way of hitting conventional storytelling beats or tropes or narrative cliches, right, in the format of of what they're doing. The need for some sort of supposedly earned emotional resolutions that are neat or tidy in a certain way, like, is a thorn for me. Like the fact that... um, there's, you know, the moments at several points throughout Loki where I'm like the actual emotional reson- resonance that's supposed to be there between, you know, Mobius and Loki or between Loki and Sylvie, I don't think is earned within the actual like terms of the show itself. It's earned only in the context of these broader arcs or yeah, tropes yeah, yeah, that yeah. are to be expected. That's the kind of thorn aspect of that. And like, I've had my problems with that on Moon Knight about the Layla relationship with Steven and like the kiss that they had. I have, you know, I expressed last episode, like my reservations that it's the use of violence that unite or that is the integration of Mark and Steven at the end of episode five. So like, you know, I obviously expressed my like (laughs) disdain for the corniness of the heart unfreezes them in this episode. Like there's the reliance that again is internal to being the kind of thing this is in a capitalist political economy, like is necessary. It's there. And this gets back to what you and Nick and I talked a little bit about last week. Like it's an accepting that that's there and then engaging with it from that point forward and kind of internal to that or trying to stay outside of it. And obviously that's one of the differences between you and I. This is a bad joke, but I'm going to make it anyway, which which is like, you want these shows to have a French ending and like, we live in America, right? Like this is like the, there is nothing more, more a like joke a, with truth to it. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. Right. Like there's nothing more like American than the, and like, I say this in a, in a disdainful way in the, like 
happy ending American dream, like bullshit of it all. Right. Like, and so, and, and like you, you want the version of this that where Mark and Steven die together and that's their uniting. And like, I think you're, you're right to call yourself not the audience for this. I, I, I wish that the audience was more open to like, a variety of kinds of endings. And I sure. wish that like that was a possibility of a, a Marvel ending, but like, and again, that's why I liked the credit scene with Jake Lockley. Here, yeah. Is that it does undo or unsettle or disorient some of the neatness of the way that the main part of the episode ended. Isn't there a way this, this takes us away from this show for a minute and then maybe, maybe we should move to segments after this, but like, isn't there a way to think about the like killing off of Killmonger as exactly what you're asking for? That like that vision of that, that vision of reality is a, a vision that's just not possible. Like why is the killing off of Killmonger not exactly the thing you're looking for? Because Killmonger is the vehicle expression character of like a genuinely radical worldview that confronts the accepted reality, right? Of we're going to use the vibranium and we're going to like enact a black nationalist, pan-Africanist political military program as a result of that. Like that's the radical vision in Black Panther, limited extent to which the movie Black Panther, I think, seriously considers that as a viable political position. And then the, well, of course, Killmonger has to die. Like, that's the part of it that feels like tropey and state and uh, Black Panther's version of this is the arc we have to hit. Sure. But if you're like, I I'm, I'm with you on that. But if, if part of the point for you is like the dark depressing MCU is the one in which like the realities that we want to explore don't come to fruition. Like I, I still think. Oh, oh, okay. I see what you're saying. No. So no, the (laughs) two separate things, like the dark, Reality is the, like, just everyone dies version, basically, you know, to your point. Like, the that's how I wanted Loki to end. That's how I wanted Moon Knight to end. Yeah. Um, and on a certain level, that's what I wanted, at least. But that's a separate question for me than, like, I don't think Killmonger was ever taken seriously enough by the his political vision, his revolutionary vision was I don't think ever taken seriously enough by the film Black Panther for his death to like rise to the level of I the see. dark, depressing timeline. Like it was just never presented as a viable alternative, I don't think. Once one gets past the like, and this is one of the many things I would commend Black Panther for, right? Them taking the vibranium artifacts back from the museum is yeah. the point at which that vision is most viable from the perspective of the movie. And then it decreases in its viability from there, from that moment, from that scene and the seriousness with which the film entertains it, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't fully disagree with that, but I will, that reading is, is like driven by a like, disdain and distaste for the MCU. Correct. Like that well, like, and, can well, never see 
that can never see Killmonger as like viable for a property like Marvel coming Correct. from Marvel. Hundred percent. Yeah. So, and that's why to me, like that's also that's still an example of hit the correct story beats and don't do the dark weird thing. Right. Because like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like T'Challa is not in all ways, but in some ways a quintessential hero of a comic book story. Right. And like he faces adversity, a rival for his position mm-hmm. that is skillful and talented. And he has to undergo some kind of learning or transformation in order to defeat this enemy. He even has a loss in the process. Like these are all very kind of traditional beat type things. Yeah, yeah, no, I like. And again, I, like I, it's probably the best version of that um, that, that that can exist, but it's still yeah, a version of it for sure. And again, like I think that's just another example, and I I respect this, but that's another example of you asking MCU properties to do something that the comics don't do. And I don't think that that's a bad thing to ask for. Actually, I think that that's exactly the thing we should be asking for. And I think to like come back to to like conclude the Moon Knight discussion, that's actually the thing that I appreciate the most about like this series is that it feels like for a number of different reasons, like part of what I like and what others enjoy about this series is there's some distance from the comics or willingness to carve out distance that is maybe not present in other places. Yeah. So I don't know. I yeah. Think, I mean, I, I have, I have more Thors, but there'll be retreads of everything that I've complained about we, for three months. So let's go to the segments. Yeah. We know that we know that you hate this. So yeah, the fight <laughs> scenes, the humor, the universe, the extended universe of it all. Like those, this is well-trodden paths, but there, what extended universe? We don't know what the extended universe is. I just that that doesn't feel fair because like listen you you point to a thing that's like this is oh, I'm I'm, I'm talking I'm talking about MCU as a whole I'm not the fight oh. scene the fight scenes the like bad comedy like I'm very specific I'm including both MCU and Moon Knight yeah and uh, for like the extended universe nature of it Moon Knight is like probably the most of an exception that the MCU can accomplish and so like I guess kudos for that. <laughs> to be a rose from you john that is not a rose pass all right let's go to marvel splaining because i can't take any more thorns right now (laughs) (laughs) okay so this is i mean i think we've touched on this so this can be quick but the fast forward at the end of the fight with hair in this episode the other fast forwards in previous episodes that we have witnessed um i think kind of most notably in episode three these are the work of jake lockley yes yeah, yeah, I think that's what we're 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 meant to believe. Yeah. Okay. And then the thing that I was more genuinely puzzled about, I was under the assumption, given Kanchu's threat that Layla would be his next avatar, that there was limited ability for humans to be like, nah, bro, I'm not going to be the avatar. But Layla's like very intentionally saying no to Kanshu, I will not be your avatar. Yeah. So like, do we know canonically, like across the board, humans can just be like I'm out. I'm not going to do it. And thus have to accept some consequences. I think, I don't know. I think the answer to that question is I'm not sure. But the way that I was reading it is that there is some degree of choice, but it seems like choice is often coercive. And so like the, the way that I was thinking about Layla prior to her just saying no is like, the way Kanchu gets Mark to be his avatar is he meets him at the moment of his death, essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So like the assumption is that like it would be very easy to meet Layla at that kind of moment, just given the scenarios they find themselves in. Okay, that works. Uh, yeah, I feel but, I feel part I feel effectively explained. I love it. I love it. And thank you for explaining to me. Oh, I can't believe I can't believe this. I forgot the most important rose. Oh my god! Can please. we go back? And it makes me think. I think of it just now. The most important rose, Danielle, is talking about the MCU with you. Oh, that's very sweet of like you. That, that I mean, actually, extremely, yeah. like, genuinely. That's, like, yeah, not, yeah, that yeah. I don't play that for laughs. I mean that, like, very seriously. And, As I like, giggle over here. <laughs> yeah, and uh, sincerely. The genesis of this, po- of, like, this, this part of the podcast being this sort of moment where you were, like, what's happening here? And I, like, explained Black Widow in a way that, like, kind of made sense yeah. and made you experience that movie not in a headbanging kind of way. Yeah. Like... I like I love that. That was like one of my favorite moments of our friendship. Yeah, a hundred percent. There have been moments of this podcast I have not loved. I but, I, I, I recognize that. But I wouldn't put them. <laughs> I wouldn't put them in thorns. I think Nick said it last week, and I want to echo it, which is like I appreciate having to articulate what it is that I like about these, and like having to not necessarily defend, but like but like lay out like what is enjoyable for me and recognize what's enjoyable for me is not enjoyable for everyone. My inclination would just be like pure dismissal. And so for me, the like act of doing the podcast with you, like I joke that it's like my generosity, but it's more, it's my respect for your intellect and your (laughs) engagement with the show because like absent the context of this show, I just be like hard pass on all of it. So like to me, it's the, the act of trying to engage with it mostly seriously and admittedly oftentimes, uh, unseriously, (laughs) like, the serious part is for me like the act of kind of critical generosity or openness. That's the earnest. I'm, earnestness is not generally my vibe, but like I, I would, like it. I would be very it. earnest about the like podcasting about this with you is the greatest. Is the greatest I'll take it. It's honestly been like fun. just developing this podcast, even when we fight, like has just been one of the best parts of the summer. Yeah, hundred so. percent. Okay. I'll take it. Back, so thank right. you. Thank you for the Marvel explaining <laughs> for the last Back to months. yelling at each other a little yes. bit. No. Oh um, what do you have for the Easter egg hunt? Uh, just one. And that okay. is, is the car at the end, like visually suggestive of yes. other vehicles that Marvel characters have uh, driven around? Not other, not other characters, but Mark Spector. So like Mar- the Mark Spector character is like the head of Spector Corp, which is kind of like a news James media, Bond nemesis. Like a media, <laughs> I watched Spector this weekend, like a media conglomerate, I believe. And so the car and the license plate are like reminiscent, are like a link to that. And Jake Lockley is canonically, I believe, a cab driver and like a, like he's got the of, cabbie hat. Yeah, and, like, one of the working class identities, which is, like, an interesting contrast to the, like, rich kid of Mark Spector, who's, like, the CEO of Spector Corp. Yeah, and in the show, I'm assuming not in the comics, in the show, Jake Lockley speaks Spanish. In the comics, too. Oh, in the comics, too. Yeah, I believe in the comics, too. Okay. I believe that that's right in the comics, but, like, who knows? Maybe I'm making it Yeah, obviously I didn't, like have any idea of Spectre Corp or anything like this, but I am going to say it is fitting. I did pretty well on the Easter egg hunt in Loki. And I'd like to say that me 
semi-correctly getting this at the end of Moon Knight. I'm going to count as a win. Even in, even though your mode is often critical, the ability to like pick up the like context and visual clues about the like wink, I think is important. And that's what you're that doing makes here. me sound like I'm like a five-year-old who like okay. understands context. Please. Oh my God. Let's go to gloss. <laughs> oh, you're not going to ask your question about the Easter egg. Oh, sorry. I'm interested in like what your experience has been looking for, just thinking about Easter eggs in terms of the show. It's been 20 to 30%. Like I enjoy if I can win at the Easter egg hunt and try to impress Danielle. And then the rest of it is like, I'm fucking out on a giant connected universe. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. I, you know what? That actually 20 to 30% feels like a triumph. So I'll take it. Definitely. I would have guessed before we had done this that I would have been, that would have been like a six and a half percent. So (laughs) think about like you were four times more successful. Yes. Um, all right, let's go to glass. Let's yes. maybe move through these quickly because we quickly. have been, it's been happy a really long time for a while. <laughs> um, all right, you wanted to revisit the hero, anti-hero, none of the above combo that we had last week. Yeah, just that I think that this maps on to parts of our discussion already and that the moment at the end of the main part of the episode where Mark and Steven reject the killing of Harrow, I think moves via vis-a-vis our conversation last week with Nick, moves the character more in the realm of hero, slightly less in the realm of anti-hero. And then the appearance of Jake Lockway at the end just kind of, uh, you know, implodes the entire concept. Yeah. And I think like we talked already about Jake imploding and I think like the thinking about how he how his entry implodes like that typology is just another like helpful layer yeah all right let's i i want to talk a little bit about the return to the mental institution i mentioned this earlier but i think like we get a return to the mental institution here it's another moment where there's sort of like the conflict between harrow and uh i believe it's mark this time um and i again like it's it's a disorienting move, and I'm just, like, here for the disorientation that the show offers to us. Yeah, and the sake of time, I'll just say that I think, again, leaving somewhat open some of the questions about what the actual reality is, or if there is one singular actual yeah. reality, is, uh, is something that I do kind of appreciate. Same. We want to talk a little bit about Amit killing the Aeneid avatars. Yes, I believe you wanted to. Yeah, I'm, I was just, like, there was something gruesome about this or just, like, pulling no punches about this, kind of in the same way that Jake just, like, murders Harrow, right? Like, it was just a, oh, we're not going to dance around it. It's like, you're dead, you're dead, and you're dead. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. With- the, I mean, again, that further codes Amit as the yeah. kind of destructive yeah. enemy. Right, puts her yeah. in that position, in the antagonist position. Um, I think more directly, even though it's not like we're supposed to identify the Aeneid gods and more specifically their avatars as like pure good agents in the yeah. universe of the show. This goes back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier. Like while the Amit Conchu fight was frustrating for me, I would have been fine if this was the way that we saw Amit in this episode. Like if this was the Mm -hmm. only like place we saw it, because like I'm interested in the black and white of Amit. I'm like not in, I'm not interested in like 
a an alligator headed god fighting with like what looks like a bird dead god. Yeah. Same. <laughs> Same. That's all. I'm going to throw it to you. Yeah. Talk about visual stuff. Yeah. So a couple things that I genuinely liked, not even trying to like put on a front here. Like I actually kind of enjoyed the design of Amit uh, generally as the crocodile. And I imagine that canonically, like in the in Egyptian cosmology, she's a crocodile, I would uh, assume. But the way they actually rendered her, at least until her and Kanju started like blowing yes. up to fight with one yeah, another, yeah, but like in the, yeah. say, in the, you know, hall of the gods itself yes. in the chambers, like that I was cool with. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, the one moment of her being gigantic and having been blown up along with Kanchu that I did kind of like is maybe, like, the most metal aspect that we've seen so far in the MCU, and that is all the souls from the people of Cairo have been floating into the air and sucked away, and, like, they're just being devoured, and she's, like, eating their souls or, like, taking in their souls, which, like, I thought was kind of metal, even if the CGI is weird. Yeah, and it's, like, you get the flip side of that is, like, all of the souls hitting the sand yes, in exactly. the duat. And so, like, yeah, there's something I like. Yeah, I'm with you. What yeah. else? And also, like, Hera's staff is pretty yeah. cool once Agreed. it, like, gets completed, you know. Do I love the force lightning nature of it all the times? I don't, but the actual staff itself, I'm into. And I uh, love force lightning. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Um, <laughs> and like specifically Mark slash Steven, Moon Knight slash Mr. Knight trying to like hold back the whatever yeah, 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 the yeah, energy yeah. that Harrow is shooting out yeah. the staff. Um, just giving strong Star Wars, I guess, episode three vibes, I suppose. I kind of love episode three. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Okay. Uh, and generally, like, the Moon Knight costume and, to a lesser extent, the Mr. Knight costume yeah. grew on me over time. Yeah. Uh, those are those are things that I that I agree with. I think I agree with all of your, your design elements. Well done. Thank you. What about, give us the one good joke, the last one good joke of the Moon Knight series. (laughs) Of MCU, and in true spirit to one good joke. We don't, I don't think Danielle can confirm that technically it's not a joke. But Usually isn't. (laughs) It was the one time I genuinely laughed. And it's very early on in the episode where... You know, Harrow and his group are stopped at the roadblock by the Egyptian police and military or whatever, and they ask Harrow for his papers. He says, he says something to the effect of, I don't need to show you my papers. You need to show me your soul, which is just fucking hilarious to me. <laughs> I forgot about that until right now. Uh, it makes me laugh. I'll take it as a joke. Okay. You know what? Nice, Nicely done. Good moment of agreement here. <laughs> Okay. Minor character um, of the week time. And Danielle, I'm going to throw it to you. Minor character of the week. We're cheating a little bit. We're going to give it to Jake. It's the first time we actually see his face and body uh, here in the post credit scene. So he's only formally like as another Oscar Isaac in this episode. Uh, but we have seen him before. So Mohammed Diab, I believe, gives an interview after... Uh, the finale airs of this of the show, and I think he's asked like, "Have we seen Jake? Have we either have we seen Jake before? Or have we seen other identities before?" And he says that like 
it's not it's not like Mark and Steven are not the only two identities that we have seen on screen. And so um, one place where we think about that is like the third sarcophagus in the in the in the institution, which in full transparency, I did not realize was a third sarcophagus. It's okay. We still like you. We talked about those blackouts, right? So, like, those are all places where we have encountered another identity, though we haven't necessarily known who it was. And so, like, we're cheating a little bit, giving it to Jake. What an entrance. And I liked his hat. Yeah. Maybe we can, we should both, I've been looking for, like, I still need to settle on what is a hat that I wear to protect my bald ass head. So maybe we both need to get Oscar Isaac Jake hats. Absolutely not. I'm not interested <laughs> in, in that. I have a Yankees hat. That's all I'll be wearing. Thank you very much. Fair enough. Actually, what Joel is a great person to have on to talk about hats. <laughs> he does have. I've he seen. Has, I've seen at least one. A very, very beautiful hat that he wears. He has a beautiful set of hats. The man knows a good hat. Yeah, and I. I don't think I could pull off. This is not to slam. Joel's hat selection, but to no, slam no. myself, I don't think I could pull off his hats. It's a very specific, like, person and persona. Yeah. That, but I think you could cultivate it. Okay. All right. Conversation for later. Yeah. That's the meta episode that we do in between seasons <laughs> of The Americans is about hats. All right. Let's dip into politics and the MCU. I'll throw this to you, John. Yeah. So I don't think we're necessarily supposed to take this as a political statement for a number of reasons, which we can get into or not get into. But all of the Egyptian police or military, all of them except for just one, have their souls removed by Harrow's like powerful judgment of Ahmet moment. And again, I don't know if we're supposed to read anything politically into that, but I think it's notable. And then I think kind of more generally the question that raised for me is the whole like Egyptian politics or perhaps more accurately absence of any commentary on Egyptian politics that I'm assuming is a geopolitical and political economic necessity of Marvel. But like, there's no sense of relation of Moon Knight as a show to like Tahrir Square or the like end of the Mubarak regime or what has happened since the end of the Mubarak regime or anything like that in Egypt. And they're never going to do that, obviously. But like, I think that that one political moment or potentially political or quasi-political moment in this episode opened or like highlighted to me the lack of any sort of kind of political standpoint of the show as a whole, which again, I understand is a necessity of the show, but I don't have to like it. Something we could say about the MCU is like, there's a lot of politics in the MCU as you and I have talked about, as like we talked about with Lily, with Nick, right. As the, the like volume that's coming out, like engages pretty deeply there are a lot of places where like the content could actually do some of the theorizing. Now, like, you know that I love to celebrate the way the content opens these questions, but like, I I don't think that that is like, that that does all the work and that has to be the stopping point. So I think your point about like, we don't have engagement with like, what's the political situation in Egypt. Is there a flashback where, like, Layla was in Tahrir Square? Like, you know. Yeah, and, like, that's actually something that the comics do, are more willing to to do, which is, like, situate characters and content, like, historically. Like, that's actually, like, a big thing. And I think it's just, like, a decision that Kevin Feige made about, like, well, we want to make this kind of timeless, and in order to do that, we have to, like, 
not engage, also we're not going to engage, right? Like there's like the practical element of that. And like, I want to, so let's, yes, there's the timeless element of it, but there's also like a, we want to sell this and air this in places, right? Yeah. But like there, there are moments where the desire to sell and air this in places is trumped by, I don't love that language, is, is trumped by like the desire to present something on screen. So like, for example, the, in Dr. Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, the like newest Dr. Strange movie, there is a kiss between two women and I believe Saudi Arabia and somewhere else like refused to show the film and Marvel refused to take it out. Right. So like there are moments where there, there is like, we'll call it like objectionable content to other places. So like, to me, that is a, a, that is like a, like get your ass in gear, do more of this. And not a like, okay, well, we did it in this one place, but we can't lose profits in this other place. There's a, I guess, an Eternals kiss between two men oh, in Eternals who was cut out in several, pl- in several places around the world. And like, yeah, so. And I also, I'm, I'm recalling just by looking at like, so I was looking at the article we linked to on Regan's episode that I forgot that one of the things about Black Panther that was particularly objectionable is that like a CIA motherfucker is a, integral to the plot <laughs> of it all. So Yeah. Just a point about the Eternals. It's not just that there is like, that there is, or perhaps was a, I mean, like in the version I saw, there is a kiss between two men, but like, there is a like full on loving relationship between two men who, who, who two men of color who have a child that is like a huge part of the Eternals, right? So like even if the kiss is edited out, like you can't edit out those other sure. pieces of character development. Yeah. I want us to both be able to like be frustrated about the editing out and also celebrate that the like the other stuff is there because it's very it would be very easy for it to not be there and yeah. like we don't ever want to go back to a place where like, it's just easy to like keep it all out and keep it only heterosexual and keep it only like white. Yeah. We'll bypass the Lisa Dugan, Jasper Poir, homonormativity point and keep moving along. We have other, we have other business in the cave. You have some, uh, John, who do you want to take into the cave with us? Danielle, it's, who I want to take in the cave before I even knew that this was a segment about the MCU that we were going to do before we even were podcasting about the MCU, like eternal primordially to my core, I have wanted to bring the Frankfurt school to the MCU. Will you permit this? John, it's our last episode and you have of MCU stuff and you have made it through 11 without doing this. Yeah. Have I'm it. impressed like, by myself. I'm that, impressed by you too, because I wouldn't have made it through that many episodes. Like let her rip, man. Okay. So I've been thinking about this one. I've been working on this one. I may have texted quotes and allusions to this to Danielle and to actually producer Amy, maybe on a separate thread than the one that Danielle and Amy and I are on good together. That it was a separate yeah, thread. Correct. Okay. So there's a lot of places one could go. We could go with Adorno or Horkheimer and Adorno together on the culture industry. We could go with Marcuse on one dimensionality. We go with Marcuse on like the sublimation of erotic energy into capitalist formations. These are totally viable. We could do that, but 
up for a paper that I'm working on with a couple uh, a couple of friends of ours. Uh, I have been reading a lot of Max Horkheimer lately, so we're just going to go straight up Horkheimer in the Do Eclipse it. of Reason for our Frankfurt School uh, tearing down of this entire project. Okay. Our podcast included, so I recognize my own complicity in what it is Horkheimer's describing. So I'm just going to read, you know, a choice passage. This is page 35 of the Eclipse of Reason. Uh, I want to say 1947 was when this was first published. Chapter and verse. Yeah, absolutely. Don't worry. Don't worry. This is towards the end of the first chapter of Eclipse of Reason. Quote, he's talking about um, subjective and instrumental rationality. Quote, in order to prove its right to be conceived, each thought must have an alibi, must present a record of its expediency. Thought must be gauged by something that is not thought, by its effect on production or its impact on social conduct. And then here comes the key part. Uh, As art today is ultimately being gauged in every detail by something that is not art, be it box office or propaganda value. And so Horkheimer is making the argument in kind of the broader context of his discussion of the way that there's a kind of waning um, historically across Western culture of emphasis on on philosophical thinking and thought on kind of notions of reason that ask broader questions about kind of purpose or morality or object objectivity or truth or things of that nature, that there's a subsumption of all thought, critical, analytical evaluation, all, in this case, aesthetic evaluation that loses any reference to broader ideals or to broader notions of what could constitute thought or philosophy or aesthetic goodness or something like that. Everything gets subsumed into a means end form of reasoning that's about does the means achieve this capitalist oriented or self-interested or desire sublimated desire oriented end. And the way that he takes that with regards to art is that art is being ultimately engaged in every detail by something that is not art. That is to say that art in an era of instrumental reason is judged not by its aesthetic uh, skill or its aesthetic kind of generativity or something like that, but rather, as he says, it's box office or propaganda value. The What are the, does this piece of art fulfill a limited and is it the proper means for doing so? And so the rest of this segment kind of writes itself, right? It's the standard sort of critiques that I would make that like when everything becomes content or everything becomes a property, there's less of an emphasis or perhaps minimal or no emphasis on, is this an aesthetically worthy project? Instead, it's a, how does this fit within the ends of this extended universe? Does it connect this one story to the next and or does it have box office to propaganda value? What are the means? What are the ends? And how they're disconnected and severed from anything like aesthetic evaluation, analysis, or judgment? This I can keep your, going, but I'll this stop. This up is your fucking catnip. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like, oh, a place where we can locate the definition of what art is against what it's not is like, everything you exist in especially in the persona that's mostly real that i've adopted for the mcu podcast yeah it's mostly real (laughs) but it's the you know so obviously like martin scorsese got a lot of bullshit 
Yeah. Some of it earned, admittedly, for like his takes on Marvel and all of that. Yeah. But like, I think the fundamental point he's trying to make is that there is a difference between the purpose and goal of something that understands itself as cinema or film or art or aspiring towards that and something that is aspiring to be content. Like, that those are different aims or ends and thus the means are different. Like I, I, that I I think is like fundamentally the point he's making. I don't think that's right. He is attaching a judgment to it and I'm attaching a judgment to it. And maybe that's where you and I would then differ. But I think that's the problem, right? Like the problem. So first of all, like I think the part of Horkheimer that I'm bristling at is not necessarily the, like, the critique or the way in which you're thinking about the critique as applied to Marvel. I think like the, for me, it's like a step before that, which is, I think the part of the Scorsese critique that I bristle at, which is like, who the fuck are you to decide what is and is not art, right? Like what's art to you and what's art to someone else? Like, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying like the, the, the you of the critic, right? Like there's something fundamentally elitist about that that is like really really challenging for me and like that doesn't mean that the critique I I think like in fact there are elements of the critique that you just offered and that you that you John McMahon have offered throughout like these two seasons of the podcast that like make a lot of sense but the minute it for me it is attached to like I am doing the defining or I am adhering to a definition of what counts as art and I'm policing the boundary into that. Like that's where it starts to get really tough for me. Okay. I I hear that. And I have kind of two sets of responses and one is a Horkheimer one. And then one is a me one. Okay. And the me one is like, okay, like call that elitist if you want, but like pick one's favorite Scorsese movie that is aspiring to something very different than what a Marvel, the best Marvel movie is aspiring to be like, those are aspiring to be qualitatively different things. Yes. But aspiring to be something different does not necessarily, this is the part where the judgment comes in, right? I'm with you. Like what Scorsese, I don't think I've ever seen a Scorsese movie, which oh like, my God. Okay, <laughs> podcast <laughs> over now. We're not, now yes. it's done. Now this is the flip side. Perfect ending. Moment. I'm trying. Is gangs of New York Scorsese? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I've seen that. Why is there an elephant in that movie? Anyway, <laughs> but like, Wow. (laughs) Okay. A deep cut. But like the aspiring to be something different, serving different ends. Again, I think like that is all incredibly valid, but the, the judgment that then gets attached that like. What's wrong about the judgment itself? Not the act of judging, but what's incorrect about the judgment itself. I think it's the act of judging. That's a problem, right? Like saying that what Marvel or what, any, I you know, pick your favorite IP generator here, right? Or your least favorite, whatever. Like what they're aspiring to do does not count as art. Like that to me is a problematic judgment because it requires a like police definition of what counts as art. Like, like why is, I don't know, Scorsese having a fucking like zoo or a circus, like, you know, crumble and there's an elephant running on screen for five minutes of that fucking movie. 
Like, why is that art? And, and like, why isn't the ability to like, I don't know, create a cinematic universe? Like, why doesn't that count as art? I'm not saying it should, but I'm just saying the, like, the premise that some things should, should count and are judged as like aesthetically, like, like, we say aesthetically better. I'm fine with that. I'm comfortable I, well, with that. Well, I was going to say aesthetically intelligent because I think or the that. other piece of this is like it's the entry of reason in a really, uh, again, like problematic way that also like makes it tough for me. I guess like I there's That's there's the no one part of the Horkheimer where I would have some beef with him is on the his notion of objective reason, although he yeah. he complicates what objective reason sure. is and has done. So let, let me reason by analogy, perhaps with you that. Oh no, Ken, <laughs> would you agree? And I think I think I know the answer to this because we've talked about this in any number of times in our careers outside of not quite great books. There are some political theorists that we find to be qualitatively doing better political theory than others. Yeah, but I, yes, however, like, I am always willing to put forward the caveat that, like, what I find qualitatively enjoyable, intelligent, like, pleasing, whatever, is specific to me and to the, like, kinds of questions I'm willing to ask. Now, do I like think that I'm, I'm that you and I are asking more interesting questions than other people? Sure. So I'm not saying that like, we shouldn't do any of this judging and we don't do it in other places, but like, it is frustrating. There's, there's something about the, like the extending the analogy to just like a full on dismissal of like all of these different and some of them weird, some of them not pieces of IP. Like, okay, if it's part of IP, it's just like, it's off the list. Like, I don't know. There's something really unsatisfying and, and, and like aesthetically lazy about that. Like, which is not to say like, Oh, you have to accept all of Moon Knight whole hog. And we have this discussion vis-a-vis Loki and Moon Knight over the course of the last three months, but it's like, what are the pieces of this that feel worth exploring, worth taking up that like we, you could do something different with like that to me, like the ability of something to like generate a conversation, a set of thoughts, like disagreements, like there is something like, there's something generative about that. Yeah. That's that's maybe different than like what Scorsese wants us to be doing yeah. on screen. So let me do a both and. And the one half of the both and is that I somewhat agree with that last point in the sense that like clearly I have been willing to take, you know, 12 episodes of MCU shows like on aesthetic terms and submit them to aesthetic judgment, which to me is like an act of respect, even if I retain this broader umbrella of like Absolutely. judging them as qualitatively different and having different ends. Yeah. So that's kind of one half of the both and. Another half of the both and, being very animated by this and knocking my pop filter <laughs> around. Um, but the other half of the both and is that, like, I think saying that it's the act of judging is the problem, like, doesn't fully answer the criticism that's being made in the sense that, like, yeah. MCU shows or M- the MCU by its own admission is doing something different. And has the different purpose. And by the very nature of having that different purpose, like if we just, I, th- I don't think it's satisfying 
intellectually or aesthetically or critically to say that these are two different purposes and I love all purposes the same and I don't and I'm not going to make judgments about them. I'm not asking them. for that. So, but I, I so I think that like the it'd be different if the MCU had aspirations that were different than the aspirations it has. If we agree that the ends are different, then that invites invites the judgment and the analysis and the evaluation. And like, I'm fine with, if it makes me elitist to say that like, I think there is more art in choose random Scorsese movie than choose random MCU property. And this, like the fact that content and property are the ways in which we talk about this is a tell to me. Like I'm fine with being elitist if that's being elitist. Okay. One last point on this. Okay. Yes. Which is, I think the fact that we, we could very easily extend the like language of property to the movies that Scorsese makes. Sure. Sure. They are also part of the machine of capital. A hundred percent. I think that that's like also like that's another place where like this is challenging to me because it's like and again I think like you explaining sort of your like like capitalistic critique of like MCU properties last week was really helpful for me but like it this is not like some black box theater like in, a bil- in, a billion in the percent. back streets like, of Queens. Netflix like, spent, you know, $250 million on the Irish mid. Completely. I will never watch it. In fa- I'm very Irish. I will never watch this movie. Right, but, like, these, this is also part of the capitalist machine. So yeah. I, I think, like, part of it for me is, like, I understand. Listen, taste is subjective. Fine. I, I'm happy for you to like Scorsese movies and for me to like MC. Scorsese is like not my favorite director. No, 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 like fine. But always, like, he's a useful, a uh, helpful. Yeah. I'm even, I'm willing to, to submit that like the MCU is a much more machine like in the machine of capital. Yeah. But like, Netflix movies, yeah, blockbuster agreed. films, like pick agreed. your favorite filmmaker. Yes. Like every like that that's it's like the same the unwillingness to of me to engage the like act of judging and like like the laziness of that is the same like there's a parallel laziness to the like, well, like MCU is about capitalism, but like I don't know, like uh Kill Bill 2 is not. Like, Killable to it is, but <laughs> right. But like, I think there are plenty of people who having this conversation would be like, "Oh, but Tarantino," and it's like, Tarantino yeah, no, yeah, is also uh, making money machine. A hundred percent. The more aesthetically reaching for something different, like film, is also part of a capitalist machine. A hundred percent. I would not deny that. There's one more Horkheimer point that I want to make, and I'll try to make it briefly. Yeah. And that is, it, it goes, it's in this question of like reception, ultimately. I, you have expressed skepticism over the act of the judging of like Marvel is aesthetically inferior or whatever. Yeah. But like one of Horkheimer's points that I think is quite interesting that he makes throughout the first couple chapters of Eclipse of Reason is that within instrumental reason, as it becomes kind of married to capitalism, it then passes judgment on that which aspires to philosophy or aspires to aesthetic truth or whatever, to use some of his terminology, to be like frivolous and pointless and meaningless. So it's not like the judgment's only coming from one side. Like then to like 
update that for our conversation. Yeah. I'm sure, and this is not you, I 100% do not implicate you in this, but I'm sure there's any number of like MCU fans who would dismiss like art film, critically celebrated art film du jour is like laughably pointless because like it's an art film, right? So it's like the yeah. judging is not a one-way street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, do I think one act of judgment is good and the other is bad? I do. And that's the yeah. difference between us. Yeah, and I think, like, I'm glad that Horkheimer has, like, a little bit of, um, like, a little bit of balance in there, but I think it's just, like... Oh, Horkheimer has has no balance in this. (laughs) Or you're finding some balance in Horkheimer. Like, I am... I just, like, don't... and, And we talked about this a different time, but the impulse to gatekeep and then the justification, the, like, intellectual justifications that defend gatekeeping, which is, like, kind of where I... How I'm thinking about Horkheimer. And admittedly, I haven't read Horkheimer. So, like, I'm I'm just going off this little piece. But, like, there is something really reminiscent and like to go back to your analogy about political theory of the like oh you read this book and you liked it we all thought it was trash like you're getting something wrong and like I just think that like as a culture we are so quick to like throw out the like you're getting something wrong and it's just like what if there was a plurality of ways to be right and I'm not sure that as as you've laid it out, that like that is a possibility. And that I just like I want it to be more I want that's like the 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 mode of inclusion that I'm interested in. Yeah, and obviously like I have even before doing the podcast, but especially doing the podcast with you, like I've become more I become way less optimist and way less like plurality of aesthetic. Uh, pursuits and it becomes so more single-minded and there are parts of that that I like and parts of that about myself that I don't like so (laughs) here we are we have ourselves use Moon Knight as a uh, version of uh, self-exploration I don't know if I'd say that Uh, (laughs) we have okay before we leave the cave we have a new segment (laughs) that we are going to introduce because we've been at this for over two hours so we might as well just we've this was derived from a flash of brilliance in the previous Americans episode Americans 2 episode 11 stealth indirectly inspired by our conversation I think with Regan Levitt yeah probably uh, who talked about shipping and this is our new segment part of the cave called theory shipping yeah. where John so Horkheimer's I- coming back out of the cave with us for the record no he's coming Horkheimer. back I'm you and I are fighting over whether he's coming back out of the cave I have pushed Horkheimer's body into the fire oh my god <laughs> he has not Harsh. fallen into the fire but that I have Harsh. done that pushing you have saved him okay deal okay um okay but theory shipping so I both John and I are gonna quickly pick you know, what theorists or theory artifacts are we going to have which characters read? Yeah, this is like our version of shipping that is true to ourselves is everything is the cave and I'm not quite great books. Everything and is the And we cave. just think it's fucking hilarious, even if you don't, as the listener. Yeah, the cave is for us. <laughs> so my ship is that I'm having Kanchu and Amit read the Iliad because, in fact, in this episode they are performing the Iliad as they have a battle like between the gods that is also well, while there is also a battle that's being enacted um amongst humans here their avatars oftentimes in 
in the Iliad, like it's humans that are being powered up by or like driven by the interests of the gods that there's like pettiness all abound. So I'm having Kanchu and Amit read the Iliad so they can understand the, the Greek manifestation of the very thing that they are doing. John, who are you, who and what are you shipping? Okay. I'm having Harrow read Nietzsche genealogy of morals because there's something about, I think that Harrow thinks that like the refusal to accept Ahmed into your lives is like a indication of uh, slave morality. Need yeah. to controversially call slave morality. Yes. And so I think that if we want to make Harrow even more villainous, but also potentially a tiny bit right, we have him read some Nietzsche. And I think that yeah. he would really enjoy it. I think that he would be into it and he would find a way to connect Nietzsche to the like glass in his shoes. Oh, 10 billion percent. He would. <laughs> Which. Yeah. I just want to say in the, that final scene where you see the, the, before the, the cutscene where you see the blood on the floor. I was like, I have been waiting for that blood the whole time. That man's feet are bleeding from the jump. He's got glass in his shoes. We didn't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was theory shipping. And we'll keep working on what exactly theory shipping is. Um, I love it. Or it can just be <laughs> whatever. John, and, John and Daniel remember some theorists. John and Danielle smuggle more theory into <laughs> a show that is ultimately all about political theory. Yep. John, we, I we can't, did it. I can't fucking believe it. <laughs> um, well, this is also, I believe, now officially the longest episode of the, the longest books. episode. Holy and you know holy. what? For many reasons, that's only fitting. It's only fitting, and I would not have rather done it with anyone but you. <laughs> but I am quite Same. happy we have made it to the end of the MCU version of the podcast. That is the truest both and that has ever been spoken. <laughs> We love a both hand. Um, okay. Thanks as always to producer Amy. Um, thanks to you listener. If you got this far. <laughs> Un- unbelievable. Like unbelievable. Sh- shout out on air. If you email us and say, that yeah, tell us that you got to the end of the episode and we yeah. will shout you out in the next step. Yeah. We record. Tell us who theory shipped you. And that's your yeah. proof that you did it. We will be back in your feeds on Thursday with American Season 2, Episode 12, Operation Chronicle, which I watched last night because that's what I thought we were uh, (laughs) recording today. Alas, we are not, so stay tuned for our thoughts on that episode. And thank you so much for joining us on Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It was created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time. Go play some racquetball.